There are no unlucky circumstances any more than there's luck for the Christian. No Christian believes in luck, not if he believes the Bible. And we know the Bible says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God providentially works the circumstances of life for the believer. And so this storm was a means to an end. It was designed to strengthen their faith and to bring them into a greater knowledge and understanding of Christ. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Jesus Walks on Water. We saw yesterday in our study of John chapter 6, the storm that arose following Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Pastor Carl noted the fear that overwhelmed the disciples when they saw a figure walking towards them on the water while they were in the boat. And as Pastor Carl reads from verse 20, we can't help but notice the tenderness that overshadowed these frightened disciples. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing therefore to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now remember the immediate context. The first 15 miracles, uh, first 15 verses explain the miracle of feeding 20,000 people. Verses 16 to 21 is a sequel to that miracle. Now prior to the feeding of the 20,000, the other gospels tell us that all day long Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God and had been doing all kinds of miracles. He made the blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, he healed their palsies, he cast out demons. At the end of the day, it's late, the sun is going down, the people are tired, Jesus is fearful, they'll faint along the way if they don't have food. And so he does this miracle of feeding 5,000. The crowd is absolutely astounded by what he does. And they respond, notice in verse 14, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. They see this incredible miracle, and they say, yes, this is of a truth, the truth that Moses wrote about. He is not just a prophet. He is the prophet to come into the world. See, God centuries before, through Moses, that great man of God, as he led the Jewish people, said this in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And then God says in verse 18 of that chapter, Thus saith the Lord, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses said a prophet's coming, not just any old prophet, the prophet. And what you do with him is going to determine what God will do with you. He'll speak in my name, and I myself will require it of the person who hears him or hears about him as to what he will do. 
And so remember, the Old Testament predicted that when Messiah comes, he will fill three offices, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. And in calling the Lord Jesus a prophet, because he is, but he's more than a prophet, he is the prophet, he's the prophet of prophets, he is God in human flesh. That's the picture the Jews in the Old Testament had of Messiah. A baby is going to be born. A child will be with us, Isaiah wrote. And this child's name shall be called Mighty God. And so he will be the prophet. And of course, Moses predicted that when he came, he would speak with absolute authority. And the Jews understood, many of them, that Jesus was indeed this prophet. Peter spoke. Acts 3, verses 19 to 24, he quotes these very verses from the Old Testament. He says, these speak of Jesus. And so the folks, they believe, ah, he's the prophet. So notice what they say in verse 15 or what they do. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They want to make him king. But he has no interest in being the kind of king that they want to make him. Now, of course, the people's assessment that he is the prophet was correct, and therefore he would fulfill the office of king. The only problem was the role that they wanted him to play was incorrect. And their role was wrong for a number of... The, that they wanted him to play was, was incorrect for a number of reasons. But think your way through this for just a second. You can see how they might have come to this conclusion. If he's the prophet, then he must be Israel's king. And if he's like Moses, what did Moses do? Moses was used supernaturally by God through those great signs and wonders and miracles to deliver the people out of Egyptian bondage. In many ways, he was kind of like a king. He ruled over some two million people, and he delivered them out of Egypt. And so, if he is like my servant Moses, if he is the king, then no doubt he is going to deliver us from the servitude of Rome. But their concept of a kingdom was secular, it was material, it was not spiritual. And the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus when he spoke of the kingdom of God, he said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You need a birth from above if you're ever going to be a part of God's kingdom. And he told Nicodemus that that came through his death and resurrection. And so they did not want a prophet that would simply teach them the ways of God, but they wanted a prophet who would deliver them from the oppression of Rome. They didn't like the Roman yoke. The Jewish people for centuries had been the superpower of the world. But since the time of Nebuchadnezzar, when they entered the time of the Gentiles, as the prophet Daniel speaks of, they've been under the oppression of the nations of this world. And the Bible says they'll continue in that mode until Messiah comes a second time. And so they knew that his kingdom, they felt, would come with great power. And indeed, they'd seen the credentials. Look what he had done that day. It was absolutely amazing. Not to mention that Isaiah said, ultimately, Messiah will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But that's not until his second return. And so Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem like Flint. He sets himself upon going to Jerusalem to the cross, not to wield the spear, not by beating the enemy in siege warfare, not by bringing judgment upon them, but by taking the spear and by bearing our judgment. And so 
the prospect of making him king is just another temptation. It reminded me this week as I was reading in 1 Samuel chapter 4, I couldn't help but associate these two passages and put them together because these people wanted him as king for what he could do for them. They kind of viewed him as a divine genie of sorts. If they could just get him to be their man, then they could use him for any purposes that they needed. But they had it all backwards. Instead of their serving him and bowing down and worshiping him, they want to use him. And it reminded me of the Jewish people in that time in their history when they had fallen into idolatry and they were living in immorality and and God was judging them, and they had forgotten and forsaken the Lord, and, and a lot of their soldiers on one day died. So they went to the priest, Eli, who had two sons who served as priests, Hophni and Phinehas, who were wicked, evil men. And they thought, you know, if we can just get the Ark of the Covenant, you know what the Ark of the Covenant was? It was an object that basically about the size of this pulpit turned sideways, and it sat in the section of the temple known as the Holy of Holies, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And it was there that God's presence would come. And they thought, you know, if we can just get this good luck charm with us, then we're going to have great victory. And so they get the ark from these wicked priests. And it happened, the Bible says, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, that all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe is us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. And so they go to war. The Philistines against Israel and the Jewish people get whooped. 30,000 men fall in one day. You see, the problem was they thought they could use God like a good luck charm. But nobody uses God, not now, not then, not in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, people haven't changed a whole lot today, as we will see here in John chapter 6. Many people today want God, Christ, for what he can do for them. But they don't really see the Lord Jesus in relation to their own sin and their need for a Savior. They want Jesus to make them feel good, to get them out of a jam, to fix their marriage, to heal them, but not as their personal Lord to whom they should yield and serve. And so these were thrill-seekers. They basked in the benefits of Christ's miracle, but they despised as Jesus will show his cross. But he didn't come, remember, for your whims, for your fancies, for your delights. He came for your sin. Now, lest we rag on non-Christians who typically want God for what he can do for them, I think sometimes as Christian people, we are guilty of the same. Oh, we want the Lord to comfort us in our sorrow. We need his strength when we're going through hardship and difficulty. And we need his peace in the midst of turmoil. And when we get sick, I mean deathly sick, we're crying out to him. But then when those problems begin to dissipate and the Lord meets those needs, our walk with him begins to change. 
you know, you got cancer, and the doctor says, 50-50 chance you're going to live. Oh, God, help me. You're spending time with the Lord every day. You're in his word. You're, you're fellowshipping with his people. You're walking as close to him as you know you can do. And then the healing comes. And six months later, you know, the intensity just kind of changes. So God wants to teach us through this miracle. Through this miracle that he does for his disciples, that what he does in the midst of great turmoil... He wants us to take those lessons that he teaches us that we might walk through the everyday events of life. And so the Lord does the miracle. He feeds the 20,000. And by the sheer force of his character, he commands them to leave. He tells his disciples to get in a boat, and he retreats up into the mountain. Now, there in your bulletin, you thought I was never going to get to it. Three points. That's all by way of introduction. You say, we're going to be here all day. You better believe it. <laughs> no, we won't. It's actually a short sermon. Number one, <laughs> notice first the tempest that overtook them. The tempest that overtook them. Verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, he sends his disciples in the boat across the ocean, across not the ocean, the sea, the lake, really. It's a lake. It's a big lake. They call it the Sea of Galilee, also called the Lake of Galilee in Scripture. And he sends them across, really, for two reasons. Number one, to get them away from this crowd. This crowd is fanatical. They want to take Jesus by force and make him king, not to do God's will, but to do their will. Now, remember, had the disciples stayed, these guys weren't all that solid at this point. Remember, these were the guys who on a number of occasions they get into a discussion about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And their concept of the kingdom is not really yet fully refined. They've learned a lot, but they don't fully see it yet. So number one, the Lord needed to get them away from this multitude. But secondly, and most importantly, the Lord wanted to send them across in that boat to give them an opportunity to apply a lesson from the miracle they had seen that afternoon. He wants to give them an opportunity to really reflect on this feeding of 20,000 people. Now, this particular miracle is recorded in three Gospels, Matthew 14, Mark 6, and here in John 6. And if you read, it, read uh, Mark 6, we're told this, and immediately... He, Christ, made his disciples get into the boat to go ahead of him to the other side of Bethesda, Bethesda, while he himself was sending the multitude away. And so he makes them get into the boat. And the Lord Jesus goes into the hills. Mark 6.46 says to pray. Now don't miss this. He orders them. And what do these guys do? They don't say, uh, well, Why? No, it's not a matter of why, God. It's a matter of yes, God. It's not a matter of I don't understand it. It's a matter of I'll do it. That's the crux of discipleship. They are convinced that Jesus is Lord. And whatever he says goes. And so they don't question it. They just go. Furthermore, we're told in verse 18, and the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Now, the Sea of Galilee is 682 feet below sea level. And the mountains to the west of it are about 3,000 feet 
uh, from base to the top. And there's a number of valleys between those mountains. And what's really interesting is that very often, the cool mountain air will blow down through those valleys over the top of the warm lake air, and it will create an incredible storm. I stayed in a hotel one time on the Sea of Galilee, and it's just God's goodness that I witnessed a storm. I'm sure not of the magnitude of this, but it came up like this, and it was ferocious. It was incredible what happened on that lake that day. John says a strong wind was blowing. Mark says the wind was against them. Matthew says the boat was battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. This is a real storm. This is not some little five, ten-minute thunder shower. In fact, Matthew tells us that when the Lord Jesus finally comes, he comes in the fourth watch. That is between 3 a.m. And, and 6 a.m. This was a storm that went all night long. These guys had been in the boat for over six hours rowing, maybe eight hours. That's the tempest that overtook them. Consider also the terror that overwhelmed them, the terror that overwhelmed them. We read here in verse 19, when therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Now, it's about seven miles across from where they were uh, to Capernaum, and so Mark 6.47 tells us that they were in the midst of the sea. They're right in the middle of this trip. And the Bible says, and I've underlined it here, that Jesus was walking on the sea. Now, those who deny the miraculous, they like to emphasize that the Greek word epi, translated here on, can also be translated by or along. And that is true. It is true. The word can be translated by or along. It means that in some context. When you come to John 21 and verse 1, Jesus meets his disciples on the beach. Same word, epi. But words in Greek, very often like words in English, find their meaning in context. When I use the word pool, do I mean a swimming pool? The game of pool that I shoot? A carpool? Well, you only know by the context of the word. Well, this word, very clearly in the context, doesn't mean that he was walking along the seashore, but that he was literally walking on the sea. William Barclay, a very liberal commentator, takes the view that Jesus was not walking on the water, but walking on the shore. And he argues in his commentary that the disciples just thought he was walking on the water. He's the same one who, by the way, when the feeding of the 5,000 took place, and that little boy offered his lunch to Jesus, he said that that little boy basically shamed the rest of the crowd into sharing their food, and that's how the 20,000 were fed. Now, I read these liberal commentators on occasion. I don't really like to buy their books. I buy them used if I can so that uh, there's no money coming back to them or to their relatives. But I like to read them so I know what the other side is saying and so that I can help my people to defend the truth and the hope that's within them. But it's very clear by this context that he's not on the seashore. He's in the middle of the lake. There's a violent storm going on. It's in the dark of the night between 3 a.m. and 6, 6 a.m. And so, very clearly, he records this as a sign. How could this be a sign for believing if Jesus is just walking along the shore? It can't be. Now, remember, the signs that he selected were selected for a very important reason. Something extraordinary is happening here. 
And it's not just the terror of the waves and the wind blowing, as bad as that would be, but what frightens these guys out of their gourd is that someone's walking on the water. Look at it. Well, Matthew writes, let me read his account first. It says, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now, we can imagine their terror when they see this figure walking on the water towards them. His hair and his garments are blowing, the, the wind's whistling, the spray's blowing all about. He goes up a wave, down a wave, he appears, he's gone. They see him for a moment, and they say, what's that? Who is that? And they're really frightened. It's like a bad dream. You ever have a bad dream, and you're kind of like frozen in the dream, and you can't move, and you want to move, but you can't? Well, these guys say, it's a ghost, a boogeyman of sorts. Now, as unwelcome as the storm was, it was a natural phenomena. They could understand that. They were fishermen. But this, man, this will give you the willies, which brings us to the third point, the tenderness that overshadowed them. There's a tempest that overtook them, the terror that overwhelmed them, but there's a tenderness that overshadowed them. Look at verse 20. He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, across the waves, over the screams of the wind came a voice that they could instantly identify. It is I. Do not be afraid. He hadn't abandoned them. He had been watching them. He knew all about the storm. This storm was part of God's will for their lives. He was the one who commanded them to get into the boat to begin with. And so this storm was not by chance. You know there are no accidents in the Christian life. There are no unlucky circumstances any more than there's luck for the Christian. No Christian believes in luck, not if he believes the Bible. And we know the Bible says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God providentially works the circumstances of life for the believer. And so this storm was a means to an end. It was designed to strengthen their faith and to bring them into a greater knowledge and understanding of Christ. Look at verse 21. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat. And underscore that word, willing. The Lord never violates your free will. Nobody can make you become a Christian. No one can stuff the gospel message down your throat. If you go to hell, you willingly went there. You chose to go there. And if you go to heaven, you willingly chose heaven. And so these disciples, man, they were glad to have them on board. Yet I think of all these men and women who spend their lives without the Lord and all the storms that they go through without him. John adds something, though, that's astonishing. Notice, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now that statement is watered down in one paraphrase, very popular new paraphrase called the message. The message, and by the way, it's not a translation. It's, it's really a commentary on the Bible and horrendous in places. He writes, in no time they reached land. Now, the, the idea behind that translation is that with Christ on board, he had so absorbed their attention that the journey seemed short. You know, you ever go on a long trip and you just uh, maybe have great conversation or you're listening to a, a tape or something. It's just like, ah, oh, man, it just went by so fast. That's not the idea here. In the original, the Greek text says immediately, instantaneously, the boat was at the land to which they were going. It's a triple miracle. 
Now, the other Gospels emphasize not only did Jesus literally walk in the water, he defied the natural laws that he wrote into the universe between solids and liquids. As a solid individual, he literally walked upon the water. That was one miracle. He instantly stilled the weather, calmed the storm, and then a moment later, they were all on the other side. He takes the laws of time, and he suspends the laws of time and matter, and they are instantly on the other side. Now, remember, John is writing with a purpose in mind. A lot of other miracles he said Jesus did, but I recorded the miracles that I did, that you can know that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you can have life in his name. So you want to ask the question, what spiritual lesson can I learn from this miracle? What encouragement would God give me as I face the storms of life? Now, you may be in a deep storm this morning, and if you're not, I tell you you're headed towards one. You're either in a storm or coming out of a storm or going back in one, but you'll find one sooner or later. That's just the way life is. And so God gave us this miracle with a message in it to teach us something about how to go through the storms and trials of life. And so as we conclude this morning, let me give you five anchors for riding out the storm. If you don't need them today, you'll need them at some time in the future, so jot them down. Five assurances when you go through the storms of life. Number one, remember, God brought me into the storm. He brought me into the storm. If you're a child of God, if you've been born again, then understand there are no accidents in your life. This storm did not take the wave walker by surprise. He knew all about it. The fact that his men were in this storm was not outside of his will. It was a part of his will. He commanded them to get into the boat. They were not in that storm because they were out of the will of God. They were in the storm because they were in the will of God. Now, sometimes we hit storms because we're out of the will of God, like Jonah. But these men were obeying Christ. They're in the center of God's will. Did he know the storm was coming? Certainly. Did he deliberately direct them into the st storm? Absolutely. In fact, they were safer in the storm because they were in the center of God's will than they would have been out of the storm had they been on the land. Now, when you read your Bibles, you discover that there are two kinds of storms. There are storms of correction by which God disciplines us, and there are storms of perfection by which God matures us. Jonah, because he disobeyed God, hit a storm of correction. These disciples, because they obeyed God, hit a storm of perfection. God wanted to grow them up a little bit more in Christ. Now, if you remember once before, about a year before, they had been in another storm. On that occasion, if you remember, it's recorded in Matthew 8, Jesus was in the boat fast asleep. And I mean, it's an incredible sea journey. They're fearful for their own lives, and they say, Lord, don't you care? We're going to perish. Wake up. And again, he instantly stills the storm. But on this occasion, he's outside of the boat. Now, many Christians have the mistaken idea that if I am in the center of God's will, that if I am doing precisely what God wants me to do, that there'll be no heartache and trouble in life. That is so far from the truth. Jesus said, in the world, you shall have tribulation. James wrote, consider it all joy, my brother, not if, but when you encounter various trials. Perhaps this morning, you're in a storm, and it seems so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of you. 
and you feel like your boat is sinking and the winds seem contrary to you, but just remember, there is nothing that happens to you by accident, nothing that God does not allow first to happen. He commanded these men to get into the boat. He brought them into the storm just as he'll bring you into some storms. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 016. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.